0: I'm Molly Kimball. Welcome to Fueled, a wellness and nutrition podcast. I'm a registered dietitian and nutrition journalist with a passion to help people live their strongest, healthiest life possible. In my weekly TV segments and columns, there's a limited amount of time and space to cover everything, but there's so much more to share. This podcast is my opportunity to dive deeper into the topics you wanna know about some of y'all may or may not know that I worked as a freelancer as a weekly nutrition columnist for the Times-Picayune for about 10 years. And over those 10 years, I developed a lot thicker skin. And I remember the first, it wasn't even the first few weeks or months, but it was the first year, two years, three years when I would go jogging in the morning and see the newspaper on people's driveways and their lawns on the days that I knew my column was running, it would evoke intense anxiety and not even exaggerating. It was, I couldn't look to the side. If I saw the newspapers, I just had to look ahead. It brought me so much nervousness that these words I was writing, this content I was creating was going into these people's homes. People were going to be reading it. And I felt very, it made me feel very vulnerable, very nervous. Um, And it took a long time to get to the point where it didn't elicit that reaction. And I credit the editors who were incredibly supportive at the time, Sikiyun, over those years with really helping to guide me through that. And, you know, a lot of times it was as simple as, come on, Molly, you got to get thicker skin. Like if you're, you're confident in what you're writing, you know that you've checked, fact-checked, you know, triple-checked, and what you're putting out there is accurate, yeah, people may disagree, they may not always, you know, Um, like it, but as long as you know that you've done your homework and and it's science-backed, it's okay. You know, like you've got to kind of relax on that and don't be so hard on yourself. And so um, I'm very grateful to the editors that I've worked with over the years who've really coached and guided me. And so today I am very honored. Our guest is Anne Maloney and Anne is food reporter and editor for the Washington Post. And I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to work with Anne as one of those two main editors I was talking about at the Times-Picayune when she was my editor and she's been a friend and a mentor to me over the years. She has helped me to become a better writer, a better strategic thinker, helping to anticipate what our readers and now our listeners are asking. So essentially, what do you want to know? She helped me to really think through a lot of those questions. So she's joining us today to share an inside peek to what goes on at The Washington Post. She's been there just under a year now. She has a wealth of knowledge that she brings to the table. She has a communications degree from Loyola University here in New Orleans and a culinary arts diploma from the Institute of Culinary Education in New York City. Anne wrote for the Times-Picayune for 15 years. She was first the arts and entertainment editor, then food and dining writer and editor. And as I mentioned, Anne has been at the Washington Post for just under a year now and it's really cool to hear just what goes into the stories we see. Um I know it on a smaller scale here, but it's a it's even a whole different deal at a publication like the Washington Post. So what goes into the stories we see? How are the topics narrowed down and selected? What's the research that goes into it? How are the topics narrowed down but then how are the recipes selected? How are the recipes tested? And she's going to share a lot about what she's learned along the way about positivity and perseverance. And as you hear about her journey through, you know, the different aspects of her career, I think that you'll hear that you know, um, there's never a sure thing, and really just being being persistent and putting our passion and putting our best into what we do truly can pay off. So I just absolutely adore Anne. And I know that after you hear our interview, you will too. Um, I'm honored for her to join us. So welcome, Anne. I am so happy to hear your voice on the line.
1: Well, I'm really happy to be talking to you again. I miss you. So it'd be great I miss
0: you to too. On. I know. Just hearing your voice is like, ah, uh, it it makes me long for it. Um, so, you know, we, there's so much that you have experienced, so much that you've done through your career personally. Like, I feel like you are just this wealth of knowledge and You're almost like your own, it's like a walking encyclopedia, like resource guide. So talk to us uh, about your journey, this road to being food writer and editor for the Washington Post, because it's been a, it's been a windy, lots of twists and turns.
1: Uh, Yeah, I, uh, you know, I was at the Times-Picayune for uh, about 15 years. And when the the, um, newsroom was shut down and the paper was sold, you know, many of us, lost our jobs there. So I started looking around and um, wasn't really sure, you know, what would happen or um, where I would end up. But this amazing opportunity at the Washington Post opened up and I applied and went there. And it's been an uh, an extraordinary opportunity. You know, sometimes when something sad happens, you wonder, you know, where life's going to take you. But this has been a really wonderful opportunity. It's a great place to work. Um, it's been a little strange being here since the pandemic because I moved to a new place and now I can't really go out and explore it. But the the work itself is really rewarding and I'm enjoying it. I miss New Orleans, of course.
0: And looking back, like there was probably if we had said, oh, you're going to you know be living in D.C. in a few years, you're like, that would never happen. And here you are.
1: No, I, I mean that's just kind of the way life is. You know, I, I had somebody ask me if I if you could do um, anything you wanted to do and money was no object, what would it be? And I said, you know, I'd love to do something where I could just cook all day and test recipes and, you know, just uh, really dig in. And then this job opened, and that's basically what it is. Um, and so uh, I I was just a little bit astounded that that's what happened it's sort of you know i won't get too touchy-feely but where people say you know put out into the universe what you want and and that's one of the ways that you know you can bring it to you and that's kind of how this felt you know i, I verbalized it and then here it came and so no i would never have thought i would be working the washington post and living in in washington dc i was very happy at the time speaking in new orleans and that's my hometown. And um and without, you know, that having happened, I don't think I would be here. But it was a soft landing for me. And I really am appreciative of that. I'm very grateful.
0: I don't think it's touchy-feely at all. And I know that you and I had you know, multiple conversations during that time when there was a transition and you weren't sure what was next. And that's a that's a hard feeling, you know, to have such a uncertainty around us oh. when you had had something that was so sure for so long. And to have that, yeah. you know, you did, though, you you put it out there, you, um, you know, you stayed focused on kind of what your goals were and what mattered to you and what, what you wanted to do to bring, um, a happiness and like a fullness to your career. And so I think it is exactly that you put it out there and into the universe and it comes.
1: Yeah. And it it doesn't make me miss people any less. I miss my old colleagues any, any less, but you know, um, as I said, I'm really grateful to have found something that is allows me to continue to do what I, what I love to do, which is to help people eat and, and eat well and, and cook better and, you know, sort of navigate this whole process of getting food on the table and figuring out what they can make and being reasonable. And, um, we you know, looking at budgetary reasons and health reasons for the decisions that we make. So it's, Kind of amazing.
0: And you are a food writer and you have your communications degree from Loyola, but also the culinary arts diploma. So how did you end up doing that? How did you go to New York and and get the culinary degree? That was another kind
1: of crazy thing that happened. I was actually living in Alabama, editing a magazine and a job opened in Manhattan with the New York Times company. And I saw it and I thought, well, I'm going to apply for that. What are the chances of me getting it? And I applied for it and got it, so I moved to New York, and I was a features editor for the regional newspaper group there. And um, in New York, there's a culinary school on every corner. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but there are a lot of them. And they're designed for people who are working full-time. And when I saw that, I just decided I always wanted to go to cooking school, so I just decided I was going to go. And I went on Friday nights, all day Saturday, all day Sunday for a year, and then did an externship. Um, and it was sort of like a soup to nuts course where you, you learn like a survey course. So we learned everything there and it was, it was really helped me improve my skills and gave me a little broader knowledge. I've always been felt, felt like I was very comfortable with Southern food and New Orleans food. But by doing this program, I was able to learn more about, uh, all kinds of foods and, you know, explore a little beyond my comfort zone. So you and make things I, you know, I'd never made before. And so once I did that, I didn't, I never planned to go work at a restaurant. Um, but I knew that I wanted to, I always wanted to write about food. And so that was just another way for me to get a little bit more um, training in that area. And um, And then I wrote a few food stories after that. But it wasn't until I became a food and dining writer at the Picky in that I did it full time.
0: So it was years later, you did that. And then it was... Yeah almost, or, or maybe more than a decade later that that became your full-time thing.
1: Right, it was about, a, it was about, probably about 11 years. Yeah, something like that. So um, that was a really cool opportunity that um, you just have to kind of, when it when it presents itself, you have to jump on it. And then if you're able to, and you have the, the finances and the ability and the, um, you know, the, the bandwidth in your life and you can jump on it, you just have to try to do that. And you never know how it's all going to shake out.
0: And asking ourselves, why not? You know, like, what, why would, why shouldn't I do this? Why not? And I think, you know, a lot of times it can be really easy to talk ourselves out of things. We overthink it. We think through all these, you know, possible scenarios. But if we can kind of just go into it of, if it's going to enrich us and and like, as you said, we can afford it or we have, we can, we mm-hmm. may not think we have the time, but can we make the time to do these things that expand our knowledge base that set us up for what might not be right away but for down the road, it's going to set us up to do even more of what we love.
1: Right, and it's just amazing how the universe will do that for you. Sometimes you know you just keep you just keep plugging along, trying to do what it is you want to do, and um, and be a, be open to it, and be you know willing to take some chances because and, and make some sacrifices. I mean, I had to leave my my close friends and family in New Orleans to come and do this, but this is the point I am in my career, and I wanted to do that. But it's it's not. New Orleans is it a hard place to leave. It's a hard city. <laughs> Most to leave. people don't do it,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and they, do and do. they don't do it, and they think others who do might be a little bit crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, exactly. So, with the Washington Post uh, talking about you know what what that whole process looks like, and and especially when we're talking about the stories that you're working on, because as readers, you know, readers see the finished product. And I think that that's something that many people don't think of what goes behind it. How are we deciding what we cover? How am I deciding what we're covering on this podcast or, you know, what we're going to write about? So how do you guys do that? How do you narrow down the topics? And then what the actual story is going to be the recipe, the photos, just giving us a peek behind how this actually comes to be.
1: Well, I've been here just a little over six months, and so I I feel like I've just started getting my feet under me here, and it's been a um, you know a steep learning curve. Um, This is a very serious department. It's um, it's journalism, so that and by that I mean that everything that we do is um, you know tested, vetted, and usually has often has a news hook to it. Our reason why we're doing it. Now, we have regular columns that we write, so there are ones that just stay every week we have them. One is a nourish column with Ellie Krieger, and that's all about healthy eating or healthier eating. And uh, my boss, Joe Yonan, does a weeknight vegetarian column, so we have uh, a vegetarian dish every week. I do dinner in minutes, which is um, something where you get to I try to do it under uh, in 30 minutes. It usually is 45 minutes. You can get a dish on the table in 45 minutes. We have those standing sorts of columns, and then we're also um, the the theme of our section, our overall theme, is voraciously. And it's about it's about accessible cooking. It's about cooking for the every man. It's not um, there's nothing snooty about it. There's nothing um, uh, with you know techniques that you need to go to school to learn how to do. It's about being able to cook really well in your home. And so my colleague, uh, Becky Crystal, does most of the how-to kinds of stories. And she'll examine a technique or something that, you know, is a fundamental thing that you need to learn how to do. And it might be something as simple as, you know, learning to care care for your cast iron so that it lasts long and it really is um, nonstick and it, it works beautifully. And then she does baking essentials. And she will take recipes that everyone should know how to make and by that, I mean just that they're fundamental recipes, not that you should absolutely have to make it, but it could be something like banana bread or it could be, um, you know, a, a, a stewed chicken recipe or a carrot cake or just some, some you know, roasted chicken, some basic fundamental building block recipes that you want you want to make. So we have that kind of furniture that we have every week or once a month or twice a month. But then we're also always looking at what's in the news and what people are talking about right now. So we'll look at trends in eating, you know, trends like a a particular spice or something is in the news. And so we might um, do a piece on that. Um, Or we might do something on, um, uh, um, like, I'll give you an example. Uh, When um, there was a controversy over Goya, Mm -hmm. the the CEO of Goya went to... um, I think it was the Rose Garden, and he praised President Trump. And then a whole bunch of people started saying, oh, we don't want Goya products anymore. We're going to boycott Goya. So several readers asked us for um, different things that they bought from Goya that they wanted to make at home. And one of them was a Cezanne. It's a spice mix that's used in a lot of um, dishes from... Latin American countries, Central American countries. So we looked up that recipe. We figured that We saw just how very simple it is to make this spice blend at home, and we just did a little story on that spice blend. Um, it, you know, it's it, that's the kind of thing we're we're we try to be relevant in people's lives right now. And then we had, you know, we heard about this grain called fonio, and um, it, it, was, uh, it was a it was a it's a relatively unknown grain. That how do you was, say it?
0: Or how do you spell it?
1: It's, it's F-O-N-I-O. Okay. And it's a little tiny, tiny, tiny little grain. And so um, it, it, it was starting to be grown um, and was being used to stimulate the economy in um, Sub-Saharan Africa. And so we did a story on that because we didn't know, I didn't know what to do with it. I wasn't familiar with it. And so we, you know, dug into that, looked at it. Did a little bit of research on it, and um, and then uh, we did a recipe salmon with cheesy phonio grits. You know, mm-hmm. so we try to like just always be on the lookout for what what how food intersects with the economy, mm-hmm. with the culture, with even with politics because food is political. All things about you know you know the whole issue of sustainability and. Um, meat consumption and all of those things, um, GMOs, all that stuff, you know, food interact intersects with all of that. So along with actually, um, you know, practical recipes, we're also helping people to understand how food mm-hmm. is affected by politics, how food is affected by the economy and so forth. And then we also just really like good food. So sometimes we'll write about something just because it's delicious, you know.
0: Right. Or you try um, it <laughs> somewhere, you're exposed to it, you're like, we have to. Exactly, yeah. Okay. yeah. Or and, things from our childhoods, or things from
1: freelancers, or, you know, contract writers, they they write for us on occasion. It might be some wonderful recipe from someone's childhood and has a great story behind it. Um, uh, you know, uh, so that that's also, but the main thing we want in most of our cooking is that whatever we're when we're writing about a recipe it's teaching you how to cook something is that it is delicious. Um, that's our goal, to make delicious
0: food. How many times uh, do you test the recipes? And let me ask about the Goya seasoning. So y'all looked and saw, okay, here's what's in the Goya seasoning as far as the ingredients. And then here's some recipes of how to make our own version of the seasoning blend. Did y'all get cans of the Goya and do like side-by-side taste comparisons to see how y'all, how the, the recipe measured up?
1: Yeah, the, the this. Seasoning comes in a little packet, and when you look at the Goya, for example, when you look at the Goya um, product, it's it's like orange, it's bright orange, and it has MSG in it, and it has artificial coloring, Mm. has red and (laughs) and yellow coloring. Well, Mm. when you make it at home, it's like sort of a golden brown, actually a lot prettier to me. I like it's more earthy looking, and the flavor is a little different. And the the great thing about making your own spice blends is you can you can control you know, the, the the sodium that's in it, you can decide whether or not you want to put MSG in it. Right. You sure can. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I don't think. Or your be able to
0: Right.
1: Or yeah, I guess you could diet if you wanted to. Right. I think that's a little, a little too far. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, that's what's great about it yeah. is that you can reduce the sodium or you can, or maybe, you know, this has like, you know, it has ground cumin in it and turmeric and pepper. So maybe you want yours a little spicier mm-hmm. or you want, you know, you want more, um, uh, you really love cumin and you want to cumin it up a bit. And so you can control that a little bit more. And I've been using it. I made it and I've been using it in dishes that I make at home. And it's, it's really a great little seasoning blend. Um, just like you would make Italian seasoning mm-hmm. or Creole seasoning or, you know, a Greek seasoning. This is just another one that you can, that you can make yourself.
0: And how and many times um, do I all test the recipes? Like you were saying, the, um, is it Ferroni you said? Phonial. Phonial.
1: Yeah. It depends, it depends on the recipe. Um, there are times when I I will make
0: something everything gets made at least twice. And are you making so, it twice or is it you and then someone else who's doing kind of a, a back check? Whoever
1: whoever's column it is, you know, like I from my dinner and minutes, I test my own recipes. So I might make it two or three times. Mm-hmm. If I'm if I'm ever like concerned about it, are worried or have any issues, I can certainly ask one of my colleagues to make it too. And we see, you know, um, if there's if there's ever, ever an issue. One thing about most of our recipes is they're very, they're not complicated. They're not, um, they, they shouldn't be something that you struggle with. The main reason we're testing them is not because the process is complicated, but we want to try to foresee any possible, like we want to look ahead and see what could be things about this recipe that um, might be a stumbling block Mm -hmm. and what can, what visual cues, what, what among the five senses, you know, what about the way it feels, taste, you know, looks, smells? can we give cues to people so that they can really have a sense of whether it's done Mm -hmm. or whether it's time to move on to the next step. So we look for things like, you know, the size of the bubbles in the pan or, you know, uh, you know, the, um, like if, if you're whipping egg whites, you know, we tell people to lift the beaters out of the egg whites and look at the peaks. If, they're, if they flop over and, and fall, then they're, it's not ready. If they stand up, you're ready. Mm-hmm. Continue, move on. So we try to do all those kinds of things when we're testing. So you're not only testing for amounts of the ingredients, but you're testing for the process. And all of that. So some recipes, I mean, I've seen Becky make things five, six, seven times. I mean, that's extreme. But when she's developing a recipe, when she's actually figuring it out, and she will try like a variety of recipes for a variety of sources, and then she will combine them into what she thinks is the best recipe. Um, she does more recipe development than I do. Um, and for most of them, I would say they're made at least twice, sometimes three mm-hmm. times. Cause then we also have to make them for the photo shoot. So you've got to, you got to make sure it comes out well, looks good, stands up, you know, does whatever it is it's supposed to do. If it's a pie, you need to be able to cut it open. It needs to stand there and be photographed. Mm. Um, Cause our photographs are as they are. There's very little touching up that we do as far as color, or any of that on, on photos. We try to photograph it the way it
0: is. That we can let it go if it's at our house, because we're like, oh yeah, this, this pie, for example, like it tastes incredible. Yeah. You slice it and it kind of oozes. It's a little goopy, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Just like slip it onto your plate real quickly. But you can't do that for, for this. It's got to hold up. So you right. have a test kitchen or you have a test kitchen that you all use at the Washington post. Tell us about that. I know like right now you're not able to use it and you're going back to the home kitchen approach for testing, but what does that look like? Is it, um, is it in a separate space? Is it only used for recipe testing? Like what's kind of the official test kitchen like? Yes,
1: we have a test kitchen um, in the Washington post building. It's, you know, it's on the, on its own it, it's part of the whole complex in the building so there's the newsroom and there's you know the hr and the finance offices and all that so it's like another it's like a little part of a floor it's a big room i don't know the square footage but it's a, a nice sized kitchen with an island in the middle and it has a convection stove which i had never worked on before so that was a little bit of a challenge one of those glass you know flat top stoves mm-hmm. um and we have two ovens and, you know, really nice sink, lots of counter space with an island in the middle. And uh, floor-to-ceiling bookshelves filled with cookbooks, which is amazing. That's, like, something I really miss. And, three, you know, two refrigerators and a freezer and then a pantry just full of all kinds of spices and seasonings and pastas and all sorts of things that we need to make um, to make the food we make. And we all, the way, what happened was I came here in December, I worked there until March, and then the pandemic came, and we all started working from home. So since then, we have basically cleaned out the kitchen as best we can, and we've all been working from our home kitchens and cooking at home, which is so much more challenging because one of the things that was so great was being in a room with a bunch of really smart, experienced, talented cooks so you're cooking your dish, you're making it, you are you could lean over and say, hey, take a look at this, right. what do you think? You could, we all could taste everybody's um, creations. Oh, I think that needs all the salt. I think that needs to stay in the oven a little longer. Um, you know, oh my gosh, you nailed it. You know, those kinds of conversations. It's
0: just the brainstorm that happens when everyone's together. Yeah. You could like Google mm-hmm. something all day long, but you have just a few minutes worth of conversation and the flow of ideas. Was it like, I envision it being a place where the other reporters would happen to like wander into if they were like hungry no. or wanted to be like a guinea pig for no. a snack?
1: <laughs> no, what we do the way we handle that because you can't have that. <laughs> we, uh, we at the end of each day, we would invite, we, we have a Slack channel, you know, Slack, the communication mm-hmm. app that you use, We had a channel for leftovers and we would send a note out and we would say, you know, this is what we have available. If you'd like to try it, come on down. And then people would come and then they would be able to taste it because we never wanted to throw any food away. And we didn't. We were really good about that. So everybody would come and take what they needed um, or what they wanted to taste. And so that worked really well. And It was really fun to hear people's reactions to it. And that's the other thing we got is more feedback that way. Um, so now what we do is we share photos on Zoom and we share photos on the Slack channel. Um, we still talk about recipes. Uh, actually, not that often because we don't all live very close to each other, but occasionally we'll drive over and drop things off to each other's houses so we can date Right, them. yeah. Um, and so we do do that. Uh, and... Also, if, you know, for example, we made an ice cream recently and one of my colleagues, Olga Mazov, made it and I made it and it was a little bit different color. So we had a conversation about why that was and what that meant. And I'm probably going to make it one more time just to see, you know, Mm -hmm. why that is. And also I'll I'll share, we're very careful about things like that. So I'm going to share the photo with the person who sent in the recipe and say, you know, is this this the color it's supposed to be? Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we are working around it as best yeah. we can. Is it is it ideal? No, but I mean, nothing is ideal
0: right now. Right. right. as far as hardships goes, okay, you know. Yeah, yeah. So did y'all do the photos when you would have the dishes styled and photographed? Were they photographed in the test kitchen or somewhere adjacent to it? Or was it more like a light box? Or was the kitchen set up for photos to show the is, background? Is it,
1: we had a little room um, off the kitchen because the kitchen is very busy, very, very busy. So it's not that big, you know, it's big. I mean, it's bigger than any kitchen, that in anybody's, well, not anybody's home, but in mm-hmm. most people's homes. And but so we had a little room off the side, but what was so great was we could all be prepping and preparing dishes. And so the photo sessions went really well. we would be like, oh, the next dish is up, right. the next dish is up. Um, and then we would shoot some in the kitchen when there was a process or there was a reason to have it in the kitchen. If you wanted to show something on the stove mm. or you wanted to show something in the mixer or whatever, we, we can do it. We could do it both ways. Um, and so we really miss that. We miss that. That's very... Um, um, it's just in
0: real time. You're capturing it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's really, it's so different now. Now what we do is we have... Um, because of social distancing, we have two people who are able to work together. One is a stylist, and one is a photographer, and the rest of us are on Zoom. And we bring dishes to the stylist, and she he finishes them off, and you know, cleans them up, and makes them look pretty. And um, and he snaps the pictures, and we all watch on Zoom, and we let them know if something doesn't look the way it's supposed to look, or make sure it really follows the recipe. You know, if the broccoli is bite-sized, then the broccoli needs to be bite-sized. You know, whatever it is, we make sure that it actually follows the recipe carefully. And we deliver the dishes mostly cooked. You know, sometimes they have to be assembled right away because you can't, something, you know, we did spice egg in a hole. Well, you can't fry an egg and drive it over to somebody's house. Right. So, she, she well, I guess she could, but, it, you know, you want to crush it. So, it's something she
0: does. like you driving these dishes across town to have them photographed yep. and it's like, people have no idea this like precious cargo that's in your car and you're like, someone's like, cuts you off or stops short in front of you. You're <laughs> like, oh my gosh, you have no idea what well, you're ruining back here. Yeah,
1: Yesterday, I drove um, ice cream, a coconut cream pie, um, <laughs> Uh, um, a pasta dish, you know, a, a, a skillet pasta with squash and um, and a, like a cheesy mm-hmm. miso Parmesan cheese dish over to her house along with a whole bunch of ingredients for dishes that had to be assembled for dishes that were a little more, you know, one is quite as finished and then uh, all that's loaded in my car and ice chests and so forth and I drop it off to her with my mask on and I, or I leave it on her porch then she picks it up, But that's that's how we do it.
0: And you're just like taking the turns really slowly. Like, what's <laughs> wrong with this lady? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you know, yeah, you really, uh, it, you
1: really do have to plan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had to plan before, but now we have to yeah. plan like a, a lot.
0: And, and we she- we're
1: also, well, I'm sorry, like just like everybody else, we're avoiding going to the grocery store more often than we need to. So we try to plan really well for that as well. So we're only. We're only shopping once a week for the shoots. We're not, you know. I used to drop into the grocery store after work whenever I needed to. But I not once to do a that week
0: is—I mean, that's impressive. Like that's a lot of planning to really minimize those stops. Yeah, you'd mentioned the food so. stylist. What are some of the things? And it is—that's uh, something that you know. Whenever I'll you know, take pictures of food, mine's just with an iPhone. It's not with a professional camera, but you know, you. You were involved, and you know, saw some of the behind the scenes along the way of our Eat Fit Cookbook, which we're super excited about. That was my first real experience with staging, and and you know, all the different the textures and everything else that goes into it, way more than just the dish. I'd always been mindful of it, but that kind of put a whole new pressure on it. This is an entire their entire careers made out of food styling and I'm not sure that people really realize how much that goes into it. But what are some of the things that you like, I know it's not even close to what a professional stylist does, but some of the things that are like, you know, people are trying to photograph their food for Instagram or something. Some of the things that are nice little tips for them.
1: Well, you know, the main thing to me is light. You want to make sure you have enough light, but not too much light and that the light is coming at the food in the right direction, all those kinds of things. And when I was working with a picky, we had professional photographers, but we didn't have food stylists. So I did all of that myself and the photographers would help me, you know, um, with a little bit with the styling and then they would handle all the lighting unless I was shooting with my iPhone, which I did a lot of. So I learned a lot from people like David Grunfeld Mm -hmm. and, Andrew Boyd and Chris Granger, they the photographers brilliant. at the yeah. kids. They really walked me through some things to help me do a better job. One of the things that I got that I never had before, and if you're serious about it, you should probably get one, is some kind of screen or reflector so that you can bounce light. And you're not going to learn how to do that except by doing it, unless you have a photographer who's going to come to your house and teach you like I did. But you just kind of, it's, it's you know sort of a white screen And you can just move it around the plate and make the light bounce off in different directions so that like a little, let's say you take a piece of picture of a pie and one part of it looks really dark. Well, if you move the screen around, you can get the light Mm -hmm. to bounce and put a little light on that spot. The other thing I would do when I was just photographing for myself is I would try to finish my dishes at the right time of day so the light was good at my house.
0: So I have a space, you know, in my house where the light kind of floods into certain windows and sometimes though it's too strong and it really like washes out, overpowers. Other times it can be a little yellowy. So just like you said, you kind of have to know those times of day and I'll even take things outside sometimes and use the porch and it kind of looks like a table in the background or put things on the porch outside that kind of... You can identify that it is actually the floor instead of a table. Right, right. Well, that's the other
1: thing. Don't be afraid to put it on a chair, um, put it on, a you know, the clean floor. You know, don't be afraid to walk into your living room and put it next to your sofa, whatever. You know, it really people's homes vary a great deal. I find natural light is usually the best. I and mean, going outside can be fine if it's kind of an overcast day, but if it's too bright, then it's probably going to wash it out, like you said. So for me, it was like 11 o'clock in the morning and then like three thirty, four yeah. o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. That's when the light was softer and I, I had a little
0: more flexibility. One um, thing that I got recently that has been really great, it's um, a ring light and it goes on a tripod and it has a ring of light, but it's got three different kind of um, like, I guess, tones of light. And so, or hues, like one's more of a blue light. One's more of an amber light and one's in the middle a little bit more just like a true daylight. And that allows you and then you can also go from like a really soft light to make it brighter, brighter, brighter. And so that allows you to also kind of counteract whatever is happening, if it is too yellow or if it's too dark and it kind of helps prevent the shadows and stuff. So that's been something I've found. It's not... It's just that subtle difference that helps with the lighting as well if you're not so fortunate to have like the right time of day. And then I've done things like a spritz of, um, you know, like the olive oil misters. They're not aerosol, but you pour oil into it and then you spritz it. I'll do that onto a food if it starts to look dry or even yeah. like berries where you, you know, um, taking just even your fingers and touching them with water and then having the little droplets, the natural droplets on there looks so good. And you just don't realize that sometimes like, you know, dry carrots and something just doesn't look good. That moisture can really help in the appearance.
1: Well, you can also get yourself just pieces of, um, uh, I don't know how to put them, like, you, you know, pieces of wood or pieces of marble yes. or fake marble. Or, and you can use those. You can prop them up, you know, behind the photo to kind of hide all the stuff that might come on your house. Put one underneath, one behind. And then kind of put the background a little out of focus and it looks like it's on a you know marble countertop or exactly. it looks like it's on a country table or it looks like. So if you're really serious about it, you can get yourself some backdrops and or you can get a little, you know, one of those light um, tent kits, like mm-hmm. a little white box and mm-hmm. you put the food in it or whatever you're photographing in it. Those are really cool. Those, those. The thing about I don't like about those is they sort of all look the same, right. and they sort of look like studio shots. And that's not what I want. But, but, but you know, we used to use those at Jazz Fest when we would shoot food out at Jazz Fest. Sometimes we bring the little light tent with us mm-hmm. because it's a little small thing, and it just helps you kind of take all the noise out of the photo and focus on the food.
0: And both of those so, the um, ring light I mentioned, you can get on like you know Amazon or something for about fifty bucks, and you just type in ring light. And the box that Ann's talking about, we use one for Eat Fit when you go to a restaurant, for example, and the restaurant's really dimly lit and there's not really Mm -hmm. an opportunity or a good one to take the food outside there. There's some restaurants, it would just be weird if you were lurking outside their front shooting food in front. And so we'll use the light box, but they're like a 16 by 16 cube and they range in the 30s of dollars and they have like a little LED light strip inside of it. So it's a very controlled environment. And those are some things that aren't very expensive, but they can kind of help you up your game. Um, if you like you said, if you're kind of trying to be a little bit more serious about it, or if you're like, man, my, they just don't look so crisp and that kind of stuff can help you. Um, so testing the recipes, that's, I think, you know, do you find that it's more thorough at the Washington Post than, you know, other places that you've done food writing for or I guess time for yes, at, at the Times-Picayune?
1: Yes, at the Times-Picayune, it was really just me doing it. So I would, you know, I would ask colleagues to taste it, or I would have family members taste it, or I would bring it to people to taste. But I was basically developing recipes, cooking, doing it all in my kitchen. Um, here, um, it, it's, it's more stringent. You know, I, people, not only are we testing the recipes and sharing them, but we're also editing the recipes together. So if something isn't clear, um, the person who tested the restaurant will get a phone call. The person editing will say, well, when you say, you know, you said cook the pasta till to three minutes short of al dente and then add it to the sauce. But you don't say how long to leave it in the sauce. So do I leave it in the sauce three minutes? Yes. How does the person know when the pasta is done? They ask you those questions which prompt you to provide the right mm-hmm. for the reader. So there's a lot of people touching these and looking at them and asking questions about them.
0: It's really and what's great is you have someone reading
1: the recipe who has no idea what it's about, and they have to be able to visualize cooking it. And then you have another person who you may have edited it and give it to them, then they bake it and then they make notes on it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of practical, um, a lot of practical hands-on. Uh, editing and testing that goes on to, to get them to the point where they are. So we get, sometimes we get complaints from readers, but most often when that happens, it's either a personal preference. They don't like the flavors that you chose, which is perfectly fine. Or when you dig in with them a little bit, they'll like, they'll say, Oh, well, I use boneless chicken breast. I didn't use, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't use bone and skin on chicken thighs. I used boneless chicken breast. You're like, well, that's a different piece of meat, mm-hmm. you know, and it's going to cook differently. And, and so we really, we take great pride in the fact that our recipes are really tested mm-hmm. and they're photographed the way they look.
0: I bet and that's, that's really important. A, you know, you're so careful and you're so, you know, anything that you've done in the past has always been, okay, you do it, you put this effort into it, you, you know, do it, do it three times, reread it. But we can't catch every error when it's ours because we sometimes see things that we think are there and they're not. And it's just you're not having that objective eye. So while I don't think that there was like a rash of things gone wrong before, I would imagine that even more now there's a security when a story runs that it's tight, that it's solid. It is. And but we still make mistakes. You know, we
1: still, we're human beings and we make mistakes. We have miscommunications. We have technical issues. We have... You know, just somebody has a bad day. You know, it happens. But but I do feel, I I do feel really confident. But at the end of the day, that that what we're putting out there because you're asking people to buy food and you're asking people to spend time mm-hmm. making something. And those are two things that are very valuable. You know, the, yeah. the the income that you have and also your time is valuable. And I would I feel terrible if somebody tells me you know I made that and it didn't come out right. and I spent you know spent an hour of my time with it and then we ate it for dinner and we weren't happy. That's right. not a good day, but it rarely happens. It really doesn't happen often. And um, like
0: the Eat Fit Cookbook we mentioned earlier, um, you were also one of our recipe testers, but we had you know, over a hundred recipes tested by people in their kitchen, not chefs, because it was chefs recipes from the restaurants, you know, these dishes from the restaurants that were featuring in the cookbook. Well, the way the chefs communicate a recipe is vastly different <laughs> than the public. So, yes. you know, I had already done, you know, as a thorough job, I feel of like translating, you know, the chef speak into like the layperson language. But even so there was things that I didn't realize were assumptions that the chef made, for example. And so people didn't know what, you know, a tomatillo was, or if they couldn't find that in the store what would be a nice alternative to that and I was like wow we would have never known to put these things in like the little sidebar tips had the recipes not been tested you know and and there were Mm -hmm. some that were just um just confusing still or you know there's just questions unanswered until you have that person who has no idea getting their hands wet you know or dirty in the recipes are there any like recipe stories things that have just gone like really wrong
1: yeah, I hate to. I hate to. Let's see if I can talk about something without identifying it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have had recipes. I don't. I don't want to go into too much detail. but I don't want to, wouldn't want anyone to hear this and feel bad. But we have had recipes where we got the recipe, we took it home. You know, it was from a person that you know we trusted. They made it. It was for them. And then when we tried to make it, it just didn't work. And one of the things we ask people to do, which is so great these days is we'll ask them, like, take your phone and, like, shoot some different moments or shoot a little video. What does it look like when it's at that point? And then they'll send those back to us and we'll say, oh, you see? Like, I didn't realize blah, blah, blah. So um, we've had that happen. And um, we've also just had recipes, particularly Becky, uh, Crystal has had recipes that have just taken a long time to nail. You know, it's not that anything went wrong. It's just that you, you... you make it and you're like, well, it's good, but it doesn't taste like what it's supposed right, to taste like. Right, right. And like, I, I would eat that with some butter, but that's not a pretzel. Or I would, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, and and there are things that we, if it doesn't work, we reject it. We just won't publish it. Right. And we certainly won't publish it until we get it nailed down. Right. So I have like, I have one or two recipes right now that we've been waiting on maybe, oh, it might be six weeks, yeah. two months. That I'm, I'm waiting to hear back from the writer, and I'm, you know, I'm trying different flowers and different brands of flours to see if maybe it, I, you know, it could be the brand of flour It could be because um, you know this different, um, you know, something as little as something you might not think about if you don't cook a lot is a little bit of the difference in like the uh, short grain rice and basmati rice. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the differences in, in grains and things, and when you use them in different recipes. So somebody might say, rice, but this particular recipe, it's got to be shark grain rice. Mm -hmm, You might not know that they're home making it with shark grain and it's coming out great. And you're, you're back here making it with long grain or some other rice. And you're like, what the heck? This isn't working. Yeah. So those are the kind of things you really, that's how you find things out. Like you said, when you're testing, you're like, well, what kind of rice are you using? And then they explain and you're like, oh, okay. You know, so you, we all make assumptions based on our life experience and what we're used to cooking with, and all of that. Mm-hmm. So, right, so we the do try to like, that we
0: immediately fill in with our brains is going to be different exactly. for each of us. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk for a minute about Billy, sponsor of this week's podcast and an Allure Best of Beauty winner. Billy has essentially recreated our everyday essentials by delivering premium razors and high performing body care directly to you. Go to mybilly.com to get their starter kit for just $9. That includes their award-winning razor, two refill blades, and a magnetic holder that keeps your razor safe and dry between uses. And Billy just released three completely clean must-have products to add to your routine, lip balm, dry shampoo, and face wipes. So now is a time to stock up. I love Billy's products, and you will too. They leave our skin feeling so soft. And to express a little love for our show, go to mybilly.com slash fueled. It's a small way that you can support us while also getting the best razor ever. It's just $9 to get your starter kit plus free shipping always. Go to mybilly.com slash fueled. That's my B-I-L-L-I-E dot com slash fueled. So with the like kind of the new world the new conditions and, you know, Recipes are one thing, but then grocery shopping is another because we may not have access to all the things that we normally did, or things may, you know, it's, we don't have the same vast selection maybe that we used to. So, talk to us a little bit about that how y'all, how you've maybe either adapted recipes for that, or, you know, just tips that you have for people who are listening to be adaptable when they're at the store, being flexible, I should say.
1: Well, you know, probably more now than, than, you know, I was only haven't been here that long, but I would say probably more now than we've ever done before. We try to offer substitutions within the recipes themselves. Like we'll put a little note on top that will say, you know, if you can't find this, use this. Um, And sometimes it's just a matter of sort of going beyond your comfort zone. Let's just take pasta, for example. You know, if a recipe says, um, uh, you know, use... uh, um, Uh, fettuccine and you don't see a fettuccine noodle that doesn't mean you can't make that recipe you know it might not be exactly the same you might have to adjust the cooking time a little bit for the pasta maybe try linguine or maybe try soba noodles or chinese egg noodles or switch from pasta to some kind of grain like um rice or barley or, or farro or you know something else so what we're trying to do is just encourage people to be, you want to follow the recipe to get the good result, but, but when you're grocery shopping, there are substitutions you can make. Uh, and, you know, if it's a long skinny pasta, look for other long skinny pastas. And you're probably going to be just fine. Like don't panic over that. That's going to be okay. Or protein of um,
0: something called for shrimp. We could use a different type of protein and maybe cut it into the same, you know, into smaller bite size if it was, say, chicken or something.
1: Yeah, and, and also, you know, lots of spices are really interchangeable. You don't have, I mean, yes, the flavor is going to be a little bit different, but it's not necessarily going to be, um, you know, it's not going to be a disaster. If you don't have allspice, you know, maybe try a little clove and cinnamon mix. You know, if you don't have, um, you know, uh, Cajun seasoning, maybe... You know, one of the things I do sometimes when I don't have a seasoning mix that someone calls for is I look it up on the internet and I see what's in it and I see how many of those different spices I've got and I just put together a little mix mm-hmm. to put that in there. So just try to be a little more relaxed about those things. I mean, when it comes to baking and the, you know, the ratio of dry to wet and sugar, you've got to be precise. You know, you've, you've got to be a little bit more precise. But when it comes to savory cooking on your stove, you have a lot more... Um, a lot more leeway, you know. Same with all the milk. You know, you have, um, yes, it might be it might be better to use that whole milk if it calls for whole milk, but you know, in most cases if you're using it in a cheese sauce or something, you can make it work. You might add a little bit of cornstarch or you might add a little flour uh, slurry to it if you need to thicken it up mm-hmm. a little bit. But there are ways to work around it. I did something with creme fraîche the other day and I was embarrassed because I I, I forgot to note but if you can't find creme fraîche, which is a specialty item a lot right. of stores don't have it, it's a little more expensive. What else are you going to use it in? You know, you can use Greek yogurt. Um, you can use sour cream. So will it be exactly the same? No, but it'll be it'll be delicious. It's not gonna ruin the dish to do that. So we've tried to work w- with that. We've actually put together stories about substitutions and um, baking, substitutions in um in, all, like, just a general substitution story. What to do if you can't find butter and eggs? You know, what, what sweet dishes can you make without butter, eggs, and flour? There's lots of them. You know, there's lots of things you can make. So it either means adapting the recipe or maybe changing your plan slightly. Um, and that's, that's, it's difficult when you're new to cooking to do that, you to don't trust have the yourself confidence. that's going to yeah. work out. Right, right. But the only way you're going to get the confidence is to cook. And if you, you know, more and more we're cooking every night at home. Most of us aren't going out. So we're getting a lot more experience uh, that way too. And then the grocery shopping is, you know, we're really trying to limit the amount of grocery shopping that we do to, um, because it's, you know, social distancing is important. And the people who are working in the grocery stores, I feel like it's respectful of them mm-hmm. if you limit your grocery shopping, if you're not going in there every every day after work. You know, give them a chance to restock the shelves and give them a store that's a little bit less crowded and make their lives a little bit more comfortable because they're working very hard uh, on the front line here during this.
0: Also encouraging ourselves just to be a little bit more resourceful because if we have a pantry full of ingredients, maybe we don't need to buy one more that's pretty similar to what we already have, you know? And I'm thinking we can link to things um, in our podcast notes. And so we can link to some of the stories on like the substitution or what you can make if you don't have butter, eggs, or flour. So we can link to some of those so that our readers can see that content specifically or listeners can see content specifically. And then you were telling me when we talked last week that you have a 2% milk story.
1: Well, you know, one of the things, I've talked to some grocery store owners um, during this, Mm -hmm. and the the vast majority, let's say 98% of the people who come in there are very nice and very um, understand what's going on in the world right now and the difficulties with getting certain products, delivery, supply and demand, um, all sorts of things like that. Um, But every now and then people go a little wacky because they can't get the exact brand (laughs) of whatever it is that they want. And sometimes I think people get upset about stuff like that because they were already upset about other yeah. things, and it's just like the last straw. Yeah. But um, so uh, you know, I, I heard from a bunch of people who, when the when the pandemic first started, a couple maybe a month in, they couldn't they didn't see two percent milk in their grocery yeah. stores, and they all wanted two percent milk, and they were complaining about it. So I was just like so curious about this, and I called a grocery store owner, who then called a dairy. And they said one of the reasons that you weren't seeing 2% milk is that they had to, because of social distancing and issues that they were having, they had to cut back on their um, the number of people on the line producing milk for them to give people more space. So they were producing the more popular milk, which is the whole milk, and the 2% milk, they were producing less of it. It was more labor-intensive, and that's why they were doing it. This is what he told me. And there's no way that the consumer could know that. You know, right. all you know is right. you go to the grocery store and there's 2% milk. So you complain to the store manager. Right. The store manager may not know that story either. He knows, Maybe he doesn't even know why they don't have 2% milk. Um, or the employee that you happen to go up to who's stocking the milk shelf may not know the reason. But there could be a legitimate reason yeah. like that behind it. And most stores, if you know the owners or the managers, if they're smaller stores or you know them, you can go up and ask them and they'll tell you the truth or you can email them or go on Facebook and ask them a question. But in the day-to-day sort of the way this is going, um, there are going to be times when weird things are going to happen. I mean, toilet paper we all knew about because it was such a <laughs> it was such a dramatic right. thing on the paper products and the cleaning products. We understood. We might have not have understood why people were hoarding them, <laughs> but we understood what was going on. Right. But weird things like 2% milk, yeah. that was just one of me that I was like, I I, I I would never have guessed
0: that. It makes me laugh as you're even saying it, because I had this, um, had a voicemail. It was probably in, it was like deep in the stay at home order. It was, you know, maybe early April. And so all of this had just hit and, you know, you feel like the world's falling down around you. And I get the emails when that gives me the audio file, when someone leaves me a voicemail on my, um, you know, at work, it, it sends me the email, which is nice in case you don't call in to check your voicemail. So I'm thinking somebody left me a voicemail. I mean, nobody even leaving voicemails because, you know, the world's shut down. Right. Well, it was a woman. I didn't know her. And she leaves me, you know, hi, Molly, this is Miss Doris. And I know that you really care about nutrition and you're just passionate and you, you seem to know people in these areas. Well, <laughs> She was calling me because there was a 2% cheese shortage, which <laughs> and she had been going to all her grocery stores. And I'm like thinking, Miss Doris, just stay at home like exactly. you're supposed to. And she didn't sound young, you know. And I thought, yeah. oh, my gosh. And that was, you know, of everything that was happening, this was, there wasn't anything else. It wasn't, oh, and... This serious issue. It was like you know we've got to find a solution to this problem, and there's no two percent cheese to be found in the city. And it was probably largely because of what you just said, you know, that they were right. having to be selective in production.
1: And and you know and really, if you have to live without that two percent cheese <laughs> or that two percent milk for a few weeks, it's not ideal. I realize that, and people do have dietary restrictions and things that they're really working on for the, with themselves. And I get that. I'm not trying to be flip about it but there's nothing you can do and you got to work
0: around it. Yeah. You know, well, you have to figure out what you're going to do. I wonder how many people instead. went to the full fat version and said, "Oh, thank you. <laughs> you know, like yeah. How long <laughs> it had been since they'd had whole milk or real cheese? You know, they are probably like, wow. <laughs> I
1: know that it's hard to go back. Right.
0: <laughs> and then um, the last thing that I know that you have a bunch of tips on is, you know, storage so how to freeze how to store things that maybe are kind of not the norm that we don't think of because i think there is still and some of us I know certain products i feel this way about that when we see it we don't always see it so we want to really like stock up on it so what are ways to make sure things don't go bad on us well I mean mainly
1: you know most of the most of the products that you have in your pantry as long as you've got them in a your container they're going to be fine you know your flowers and things like that. Um, when it comes to fresh produce, uh, many, many things can be frozen. You know, almost almost everything can be frozen. Not everything, but a lot of things. You know, we just had a story, um, a writer, um, uh, uh, Rach- Angela Davis wrote for us about this topic. And she actually said something like that, like you can freeze almost anything. And, you know, when you look at corn, peas, broccoli, cauliflower, all those things you see in the frozen, <laughs>
0: Right,
1: you know, um, um, at the grocery, yeah. you can freeze them in home yeah. too, and you can freeze, you know, onions and peppers and garlic and all of that as well. So, um, you know, what you don't want to freeze are things that have really high moisture content. You mm. don't want to freeze cucumbers and lettuce. You know, obviously, things that it, once you saw them out are going to be mushy mm-hmm. and 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 not um, uh, not retain their quality a lot of frozen vegetables that you buy in the grocery store and even the ones you freeze yourself they taste really great when you saw them and right. cook them in something and most of the time what you're going to do is give them a quick blanching and in, in um hot water and then you know get them out of the hot water quickly and um you know lay them out let them you know get kind of um you don't want to freeze them all uh in in uh in that hot water so you want to get them um maybe put them on a sheet pan and spread them out and let them um, until they're really solid mm-hmm. and then put them in a, in a, in a container. And if mm-hmm. you don't want to use the block bags, you can use whatever freezer containers you use. You want to make sure that things are, are frozen separately so that you don't have a big giant pile of something. You know, sometimes, right. yeah, you'll end up with that even in the grocery store. Yeah. Like you'll go buy broccoli and it's like a big block of broccoli. You don't want that if you can help it. Right. So that's one of the, that's one of the things you can, you can, Really, um, you can do, and the same with fresh herbs. Um, you can freeze them. Uh, you can chop them up, you know, and and lay them flat so you can break off little pieces of them. Like, let's so say you want to chop all your parsley up and then freeze it nice and flat. When you need parsley, you can just break off chunks of it into the amounts that you need.
0: So, what about you know, getting herbs with a little bit of olive oil, like in an ice cube tray? Like if you had like chopped, nuts. yeah, absolutely. You can do that if
1: you if you don't mind, you know, if you don't mind having the oil, or you know, you can actually. I think I think one of the things she talked about was actually putting them in a um, in water and doing that as mm-hmm. well, because then you can let them let that melt if you don't want oil in there. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, like um, in the next dish that you might use it in,
1: yeah,
0: right, right. And then you absolutely just have to remember
1: to mark the date, what it is, and the amount if you can. Right. So, like if I if you freeze. You know, if you're freezing a pound of broccoli, you want to write on there. This is, you know, the date, broccoli florets, one pound, and then you'll know. And you also don't want to leave them in there forever. Like, you know, yes, you can freeze things, but you don't want to leave them in your in your freezer for six months. You want to try to use them when you can. Um, but they'll last a good long time. And then remember too that you know, if you defrost. Something And if it's, let's say it's fruit or something and you don't like the way it froze, you know, make it into a smoothie Mm -hmm. or, you know, make it into um, a fruit sauce to go on top of ice cream or something like that. You know, don't, don't
0: don't
1: throw it out, you know, or make, you know, making jams is another way to save summer produce. And um, I'm I'm actually one of those people who's a little nervous about making jams because I just don't do it that often but it's really not very difficult and um, probably can get a batch of jam made in an hour in an afternoon. If you've got a big batch of strawberries or raspberries and you don't want them to go bad, that's a great thing to do with them as well. So you're not wasting them.
0: And that's when, like you were talking about making your own spice blends. If you're doing something like that, then you can also control how much sugar you're adding to it.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You do need some sugar if you're making a jam so that it's shelf stable. You know, you don't want to end up with well, if you end up with sauce, you end up with sauce, but you want to be able to um, you want to be able to spread it. So, um, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's lots of and you know there's just also just making sure you're rotating things in your pantry. You know, one of the things we found when people were staying home uh, more is they started going through their pantries. And we do a chat every Wednesday at the Washington Post at noon on the site. And people would write in and tell us what they had discovered in their pantry. It was kind of amazing, you know, like, Well, I found this vinegar from, you know, two thousand five. Do you think it's still good? And we'd be like, Well, you know, vinegar theoretically lasts forever, but I would have, I that well would have to open up and give it a good sniff and really, you know. So you wanna make sure you're going in your pantry, you're pulling things from the back to the front and um and you're you're you are you are eating what you have. You know, right. you're not going, we have a recipe finder it's the post and you could go in and put in an ingredient and come up with recipes right. that have that in it. So let's say you've got this in your freezer. You're not sure what to do with it. Go to a trusted source and search under that ingredient.
0: See what you can make. It's you might be a cool challenge to, to do new. if you thought, you know, work your way through your pantry and like, you know, all these things that are in there, find something to do with them before you're stocking up on your next trip. You know, that'd be a cool exactly. thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anything that we haven't covered for our listeners that you find people asking you a lot, either about just your your job in general as a food writer, anything that we haven't covered about, you know, the transition or kind of you know how you ended up here, anything to share?
1: No, no. I mean, I really I feel like um, this is an extraordinary time to be a recipes editor had a national publication because although, you know, food and cooking has long been a craze and a hobby and there's whole networks devoted to it and a million websites and, you know, YouTube channels and everything with the pandemic, it, it actually cooking became um, essential for so many more people in this country. And so the timing of landing in this position um, has been really, it's been really fascinating to watch this sort of unfold. Mm-hmm. We've had so many people write to us who say, you know, I've never cooked before, but now I'm home alone or I'm home with my husband. I'm home with my two kids. We mm-hmm. eat out three or four times a week. We can't anymore. And I'm going crazy. What can I do? And we're offering, you know, we feel like we're actually offering a service that people need. Maybe it was something they wanted before, but now they really need it. And, um, It's been gratifying, really gratifying to be able to help people Mm -hmm. Um, and not only feed their families, but to gain the confidence of being in the kitchen. And I really, I hope that one of the, not that, you know, there's not much positive to come out of this terrible situation, but maybe having people be more comfortable in their own kitchen Mm -hmm. um, and learning skills and maybe, maybe it's a little more healthy for them. Or they at least they have more control over what is going into their food. They might, you know, their choices will determine whether it's health, more healthy. But um, I think that's has been a real. Um, I hope that'll be a silver lining that will come out of this. That people in America and across the world will just be more comfortable in this world because it's it's really rewarding to cook for yourself, and and it's um, uh, you know it's a hobby that actually pays off. You know, in good health, and it can save you money and um and you
0: can have delicious things see and you're in this really unique position to to guide people to support them to cheerlead them as they're making this transition and having like this next level of growth in their personal lives as well yeah i hope so i hope so we're doing our best yes you are <laughs> you are well <laughs> thank you so much for your time um it's been you know I just glanced down and it's been over an hour. I'm like, I miss my time with Anne. <laughs> I'm so yeah, happy I know. to have this you know, conversation. I'm grateful for you carving out this time with me. Well, I really appreciate you calling me. It was lovely to catch up with you. All right. Thanks, Anne. Take care. I am so honored and so grateful to Anne for joining us. I always learn so much from her from a creativity and writing standpoint, but also just from a personal viewpoint and the way that she lives her life and the calmness that she infuses into everything that she does. And as mentioned, I will be including the links that Anne talked about in the show notes of this episode. And let me know what you think. I know we've got a lot of really fantastic articles that she's written. So if you try out some of her tips, share it with me, I will share it with her. We always love to hear about it. I am registered dietitian, Molly Kimball, and you've been listening to Fueled Wellness and Nutrition, the podcast. If you would like more Fueled Wellness and Nutrition, please head over to mollykimball.com and you can follow me, Molly Kimball RD on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and join us next week for another dose of Fueled Wellness and Nutrition. Thanks for listening and stay focused on living your strongest, healthiest life.